Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, writer Andy Miller tells me how 50 great books saved his life in the year of reading dangerously. Andy Miller is a reader, author and editor of books. His writing has appeared in numerous publications, including The Times, The Telegraph, The Guardian, Esquire and Mojo. He's the author of Tilting at Windmills, How I Tried to Stop Worrying and Love Sport, among others. His latest book is The Year of Reading Dangerously, How 50 Great Books Saved My Life. So, Andy, thank you very much for joining me on Little Atoms today. Thank you very much. And I'm going to say, just as a a brief introduction to this, that uh, a couple of years back, people who follow me on Twitter might remember that I I had an abortive attempt to try and read a series of classic books, which inevitably, due to my Little Atoms workload, I gave up on. So I was delighted to read your book where you basically attempt the same thing, to tackle a series (laughs) of classic novels. So let's talk first of all about where this idea came from. Why did you do it? Well, I'm always keen to say about this when people ask me that the idea came before the book and the idea was no more than that I got to about the age of 35 and I came up with what I thought was a hilarious wheeze, which was to read a dozen books that I had at various points lied about having read. And so I would draw, I drew up, like, I didn't draw up a list, but I would have like books that would fit that category, like The Master of Margarita or Middlemarch or Moby Dick. And I would talk about this project an awful lot and I would amuse myself and others while talking about it. And then I turned 36 and then I turned 37 and then I turned 38 <laughs> and 40 was getting closer and I hadn't read any of these books. And almost as a dare to myself, I thought, well, you can bs about this forever or you could actually do it so i decided i would sit down and read consciously read a dozen books that i'd lied about having read so i read um well we'll talk about this in a bit but i read say maybe nine or ten of them and i got sort of midway through anna karenina and just thought i've got to write about this it was such an amazing energizing experience for something which was fundamentally just sitting there reading books Mm -hmm. I had no ambitions to write anything at that point, actually, and I certainly didn't envisage writing about this. But I was so gripped by it and seized by it and seized with the, you know, the things that it was doing to my brain that at that point I thought, well, I've got to write about this. I didn't know how I'd write about it. I didn't know what form it would take. But just the experience of reading things 
you know, and settling. I, I describe it in the book as settling a debt. I mean, to put some context around the very nice introduction you gave me, I'm a reader, a writer, and an editor of books. I've worked in publishing a long time. I've worked in book selling a long time. My whole life has been books, really. Yeah. I loved books when I was a kid, and I've made my professional life around books. And as I got older, I was thinking, well, you've made some shortcuts, and you probably ought not to have done that. So, Well, this was going to be my next question. So, you, you know, you, you mentioned you worked in bookshops, you've worked in publishing, mm. you've written other books, but you weren't reading. So why was it, do you think, that you weren't reading? Uh, well, partly I'm going to give you the excuse of that it's just professional expediency. Mm-hmm. That when you are, well, you must know, you must know what this is like. When you work in the book world, in whatever, you know, you could be a reviewer mm-hmm. or you could run a podcast like you do or you could be an editor like I was, you are asked to read an awful lot mm-hmm. of things that you would not normally choose to mm-hmm. read, that would not be to your taste, that you would not select yourself. And because you have to read those things as a matter of professional expediency, as I say, that necessarily means you don't have time to read stuff that you do want to read naturally because of wherever your tastes or interests lie. And when you do come to read that stuff, it tends to feel like the clock is ticking. You're rewarding yourself in some way, which in, in its own turn seems a bit unnatural to me. So... You know, I was reading a lot. I was reading all the time. But the truth of it is I was reading like 30 pages of things and being asked to make snap judgments on them based not on what my taste might be necessarily, yeah. but on where they might fit in the marketplace. Or, or I think reviewers must have this as well, actually. People who review regularly where they're, they're looking at a book and they're, they're seeking to find where it fits in the cultural landscape. Mm-hmm. And You do talk particularly about that in terms of working in bookshops for instance and mm-hmm. how that might i guess put you off a lot of books yeah well the i mean the thing about working in bookshops is and i talk about this in the book specifically which is that you when you go to work in a bookshop i think that i mean i, I love working in a bookshop but you tend to think well i'll give, have the opportunity to meet people who like the things that i do mm-hmm. but actually you know that probably won't happen you'll meet far more people who either don't like the things that you do or more specifically like things you don't like mm-hmm. you know i talk about uh <laughs> i specifically talk about the difference in the book between if one goes into the book trade expecting to meet a lot of people who like tolstoy you're going to be disappointed you're going to meet a lot more people who like alan titchmarsh mm-hmm. and the novels of alan titchmarsh so you necessarily have to form a way of protecting your own sincere love while doing your job properly mm-hmm. and which is probably to tell fibs yeah, about it of course Alan Titchmarsh is going to sell a lot more novels than Tolstoy absolutely and when somebody comes in and says to you with a copy of the new Alan Titchmarsh in their hand have you read this is it good they don't want to hear you say either no I haven't read it do I look like the sort of person <laughs> who would read Alan Titchmarsh or yes I have read it and it was crap you know, what does the customer want of you in your role as a bookseller? They want you to say something like, either I've read it, yeah, it was great, fantastic, you've made a brilliant choice, or, well, I'm afraid I haven't read it, but I hear he's terrific, you know. Mm. I mean, I have to say, I choose I chose Alan Titchmarsh for a very specific reason, which is, at the age of 46, to get back at my mum. <laughs> Who loves Alan Titchmarsh? You know, I bought her a copy of Brideshead Revisited, my mum. My mum is in her early 80s, and we've been up to... Carlton Howard, Chatsworth? Oh, they're revealing my ignorance. But we've been up and we've visited. I said, oh, you might like Brideshead Revisited. And she read Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Ward at the age of 80. 
And she said, and this is she's exactly what she said. She said, well, I quite liked Andrew. She's the only person who calls me Andrew. I quite liked Andrew. But it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't nearly as good as the last Alan Titchmarsh. <laughs> And she meant it. She wasn't being odd. Well, she wasn't that being be true. You know, yeah, perhaps that's true. Absolutely. But yeah, so so to some extent, I mean, I'm slight. I'm I'm wearing two hats here. One ought not to lie about these things. But at the same time, if you're doing that job properly, mm. you need to get over yourself a bit and realise that you're their customer service, and what the customer wants is someone to approve of the thing that they're going to buy. So, what about like lying about books more generally? Then, because there are books that you know we all have on our shelves. Perhaps we've bought meaning to read at one point. There's a is it Alan Bennett who says there's a quote from Alan Bennett where he says that you know there's a class of books, the sort of Pride and Prejudice and stuff that people perhaps think they've read even though yeah. they might not necessarily have he says definition of a classic a book that everybody is supposed to have read and often thinks they have <clears throat> well that's absolutely right isn't it i mean i i found it very interesting with this book i truthfully i had felt at some level that i was the only sinner in this area that i had developed a particularly acute bad habit of having fibbed about not meaning <laughs> to lie about it but you know if you and i were having a conversation Neil, about moby dick <laughs> It would be easier to just assume a familiarity mm-hmm. with Moby Dick, which one would have, because mm-hmm. one's heard a lot about Moby Dick mm-hmm. through being culturally alert and interested in seeing films and TV yeah. things. And you know, It was much easier to go with the flow rather than go, I have to stick my hand up here and say I haven't actually read Moby Dick. That, you know, that's quite a brave and actually socially maladroit thing to do. Mm-hmm. You probably wouldn't do that. So it wasn't that I was actively going out to deceive people. But yeah, I think in general, I probably was eliding a certain amount of cultural knowledge and actual mm-hmm. truth. Uh, one of the things, one of the delights about talking about this book and publishing this book is not everyone, but quite a lot of people seem to feel they need to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more from a position of wanting to fit in mm-hmm. and wanting to be liked. Nothing more sinister than that. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk in the book about Zelig, the Woody Allen film Zelig, and, and, and in Zelig, the root of his personality problem is when he was asked what he thought about Moby Dick. And when he was asked why he lies about it, he says, because I want to be liked. That seems to me entirely true. I'm Jonathan Meads, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. There are certain things that are so pervade culture. So I mentioned Pride and Prejudice particularly because it's it's a book that you know I've never read or at least I've never finished because it was one of the ones I think probably the one I was reading when I realised that I, my little atoms responsibilities were not going to allow me to keep up with the, reading the classic novels. And it's something I've attempted numerous times in the past. But I have seen the BBC series and I have seen the. Kira Knightley film numerous times and really love it and I know the names of all the characters I know the story and I know it's a book stroke I know it's a story that I could have a conversation with somebody about mm. and not get caught out and probably know more about it than somebody that's read the book once ten years ago so I feel quite confident about lying that I've read that book yeah I'm struggling to think of a really good reason why you should <laughs> uh, I, I mean I I had read some of Pride and Prejudice 20 years ago and really disliked it. And one of the things I learned from doing this project was that my opinion is not necessarily correct, nor is it entirely healthy to presuppose that what I think about a book 
trumps <laughs> what a series of experts think about it. We can talk about this in relation to other books, but mm-hmm. certainly in, in terms of Pride and Prejudice, I kind of felt, well, if I was going to sustain a position of only quite liking it, I had to read it properly. And what I would say about Pride and Prejudice is actually the artistry of the way in which it is written is the thing that elevates it above what you know about the plot. So while you would be able to bluff your way with great confidence, as we all would, on that subject, actually the the clockwork mechanism of it is so beautiful, in fact, that you can't soak that up. Mixing my metaphors terribly. Can you soak up a clockwork mechanism? No, you can't. But you know what I mean. The only way you can appreciate it is to engage with it. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things that I found while I was doing this reading. Actually, you're entitled to your opinion, but your opinion is necessarily more valid if it's based mm-hmm. on something you actually know that you're, what you're talking sure. about. You know, What I wouldn't say is that I had an epiphany while reading Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice is a really difficult one, though. I mean, it's a really good one to choose because... Again, it's a good one to talk about now because I want to talk about the rules that you set yourself in terms yeah. of reading the book, one of which is you should always finish a book. It's important mm-hmm. to read the book and finish. And yet it is Pride and Prejudice that you particularly talk about in the book and yeah. the section where you're reading it of getting to the point where you think, well, why? There's no point in me finishing this. Yeah, you know, I, what would it matter if I didn't finish this? I go out and do a little talk called Read Yourself Fitter based around this book where I take people through a 10-step programme to cure themselves of their bad reading habits. And point seven on this programme is if you start a book, you should finish it. And every single time I've done this now, which is, I don't know, we're up to 15 or something, people have... (laughs) I did it in um, uh, Litchfield and people actually booed me (laughs) for saying, if you start a book, you should finish it. I've realised I'm the last person... I'm like the Gaulish village in Asterix. I'm like the last person left saying, if you start a book, you should finish it. And I think the reason for that is that consumerism is so embedded in us now and we live in an era so much where our rights, quote unquote, as consumers are being allowed to bulldoze everything else. Mm -hmm. And so the the egotism of the consumer and the idea that they must be right. But there's so little time. There's so so much stuff and so little time. But not all books are the same. You know, you say there's so little time. Have you ever gone and looked at the customer reviews of Ulysses on Amazon? There's a load of people, furious people on Amazon who've said, oh, I bought Ulysses and I read like five pages of it and it was rubbish and he was just having a laugh at my expense and I took it as a personal insult back through time from James (laughs) Joyce but I've given it a one star because it arrived well packed (laughs) I just think oh come on try harder I talk about in the book I've said this quite a lot but I talk about in the book about Middlemarch and very specifically I say Middlemarch is a long and difficult book but if you don't like it that's not Middlemarch's fault that's your fault and you need to try harder. Actually, Eleanor Catton, who won the Man Booker last mm-hmm. year for the Luminaries, she wrote a really brilliant essay on about this, again, which I've talked about quite a lot, but I, it's superb, where she specifically says, look, the thing we're talking about here is the gap between consumerism and art, mm-hmm. and the two things are not very compatible. So in relation to Pride and Prejudice, and in relation to finishing a book, I mean, I, I, in, in my talk I say I think there are three reasons why you should finish a book. One is, you know, you're not as clever as George Eliot. Okay, you don't know it all. Surprise, surprise. The second reason is, well, you know, you might be pleasantly surprised. Mm -hmm. Actually, 
you might learn something. And the third reason is, if you don't finish the book, you don't know what you're talking about. You literally don't know what you're talking about. Mm. You can talk about your impression of the book based on what you read. And I talk about The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. Have you read mm. The Goldfinch? No, I haven't yet. Right, The Goldfinch by... Yeah. yeah I've, read the, the, I've read The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. It's a 700-page novel, and the first 600 pages, I read it, I was thinking, oh, this is all right. Mm. Kind of like, mm, it's fine, it's okay. It's like a windy sort of Dickens pastiche. But then in the last 30 pages, she does something incredible, in my opinion, which really changes how you view what you've read Mm -hmm. and also has something really profound to say about how we respond to art and how we respond to culture in relation to the painting that she's talking about Mm -hmm. of this goldfinch and etc, etc. And it radically altered how I felt about that novel. Mm -hmm. And the point is, I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't have finished it. So A, I wouldn't have had the experience and B, I would have been wrong. I would have been out there being wrong. I've also read reviews that say exactly the opposite, that it's great for 600 pages and then there's a pointless last section. Well, those people are entitled to their wrong opinion. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I feel about that. Actually, funnily enough, I I did uh, my talk down at Port Elliot a couple of weekends ago and somebody who'd given up on page 600 of the goldfinch said god damn you miller i'm gonna have to finish reading it now finish reading it and then contacted me via twitter angrily (laughs) to say i've read it what were you talking about it doesn't get any better so you know these things are all gradations of opinion aren't they you raised the spectrum of art talking about Eleanor Catton a moment ago, and I want to get. We're going to tackle the sort of vexed what is what is art. What is art? Question. Mainly, you know, I want to talk about what is a classic. Mainly, I want to get as to why the fifty books. Why did you choose the fifty books yeah. that you did? Um, we've talked about a, a definition of a classic from Alan Bennett. Uh-huh. So, so, what was your definition when you were setting out well, to choose these? I ought to say that. I didn't, uh, this is quite an important point to make if anyone's not familiar with the premise of the book, that I chose books that I felt I ought to have read, but they weren't drawn exclusively from what we would call the canon. So I wasn't creating a kind of checklist of important books. I was more trying to create a kind of, almost like a memory map, actually, of books that I, over quite a long period of time, had at various points felt I ought to have read. Mm -hmm. So necessarily there were things from the canon, like Tolstoy, like Moby Dick... Pride and Prejudice, etc., etc. But there are also things from, I suppose you'd call them an alternative canon, like Post Office by Charles Bukowski, or Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by mm-hmm. Hunter Thompson, or The Dice Man by Luke Reinhardt. Or there were just things that somebody might have recommended to me 30 years ago that stuck in my head. Mm-hmm. I thought, I really ought to get around to reading that one day. Like, there's a novel by a uh, Rex Warner called The Aerodrome which I inexplicably stuck in my head mm-hmm. and I thought oh I ought to this will be a good thing to read for this project or like Lovecraft I read some Lovecraft which I ended up not writing about but Lovecraft was somebody who as a certain kind of hipster mm-hmm. one felt one ought to have some working knowledge of and yeah. I probably I probably suggested a working knowledge of Lovecraft that I hadn't actually earned and I, I'm specifically, I write about Krautrock Sampler by Julian Cope, a book that, within my social circles of about 500 people, <laughs> everyone had read, had an opinion about, mm-hmm. could express an opinion about, but I'd bought but never actually, never actually got round to reading. So to answer your question in a very long-winded way, my definition of a classic for the purposes of this book and this reading was whatever I wanted to read next. Mm-hmm. If you're asking me what I think a classic is... Well, I'm not going to be that revolutionary. I mean, I think to some extent they're books that one might feel 
are important in the historical mm-hmm. context of literature or in you know the cultural makeup of myself or you or whoever might read this book you know early 21st century british readers might feel they need a working knowledge of this or that book but a couple of those a couple of those books that you just mentioned there the you know hunter s thompson the kowski are things that were were obviously a bit sort of zeitgeisty at the time they were popular because they were countercultural but they're still around 30 40 years later people are still reading those things so what is it is it just longevity that will make those books into classics? Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is, is, is a classic book, I would say, because it stood the test of time. I find um, Fear and Loathing... Actually, I must say, those books were the books I found hardest to read in this whole project. Because mm. I was like about 40 when I read a lot of these books, and I should have read them when I was 15. Yeah, sure. You know, And actually, they were the ones that I found most difficult. And actually, Fear and Loathing, I've, I've talked about this before, but Fear and Loathing I really struggle with. It's not a long book. But you know what? It's not a book. It's a long magazine yeah. article. A great magazine article, but a book, really? And a book specifically about a specific time and era, which I guess a lot of British teenagers who read it have no knowledge of or experience of, but get a a real kick out of the vibrancy of the prose and the fact that it's about two blokes taking a load of drugs. Mm -hmm. I mean, which is... (laughs) I don't have a problem with it, but, you know, it was a minor pleasure for me, at best, that book. And uh, what I would say to you is that there is a sort of... There's no conspiracy around this, but there is certainly a kind of industry of cult reading which exists probably since the 1970s in a way which it didn't exist before that, Mm -hmm. into which we might roll Catcher in the Rye, Mm -hmm. Catch-22, Fear and Loathing, The Dice Man, On the Road. You know, books that you would have been able to, maybe you still can, wander into HMV or FOP and find copies Mm. of, which are almost like a, you know, an off-the-shelf cult reading list if you're 15, 16. I I didn't read a lot of those books when I was a teenager because, honestly, because they were American Mm -hmm. and they seemed really obvious choices to me. This wasn't a put-on. I just, I wanted to read Colin McInnes and Philip Larkin and Graham Greene because they spoke to me louder than a lot of those American writers. I'm Gaia Vince, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. As we go into the, the second or third parts of the show, I want to start looking at... We'll choose some of the books that you, you chose from the 50 to talk around and about, you know, why you chose them, what you got out of them. But let's start with one, which is... You just mentioned Colin McInnes, Absolute Beginners, which is, I think, one of only a couple of the 50 you chose that you'd actually read before. The whole point of the thing was to be books that you hadn't read. This is one, so I'd I'd like to know why you chose to include it, but let's talk about why you love that book so, really. I read read, um, Absolute Beginners by Colin McInnes when I was 15, and it's the only book, really, honestly, that I would say has ever changed my life. I mean, lots of books have affected me and lots of books have had an influence on me. But in terms of reading a book and not being the same person I was when I finished reading it as I was when I started reading Mm -hmm. it, that's the one. I'm 46 years old. I've realised when I've been talking about Absolute Beginners that you have to be my age or a bit older to remember how important that book was in the early 1980s, which is when I was 15. As soon as the film came out in the mid-1980s, it killed the book stone Mm -hmm. dead. In fact, people listening to this may have seen the film or may have heard of the film. It's a terrible film, and it ruined the reputation of the book retrospectively. I say it changed my life. Reading the book changed my life because I grew up near Croydon. I grew up in quite a conservative household, in all senses of the word. Reading this book just made me 
a much more liberal person in terms of the music that I listened to and how I thought about certain political issues mm-hmm. and but also when I read it now and when I went back and read it again there's an incredible freedom to the prose which owes nothing to anything that I'd read up to that point and actually owes very little to anything else that I subsequently read mm-hmm. and indeed owes very little to any other books by Colin McInnes. I mean, McInnes has his moments, but that book is far and away his best novel, set in um, Notting Hill in the late 1950s over one very hot summer, segueing into the race riots. I think I'm right in saying 59 is when those race riots happened. And I reread it for this project because I hadn't read it for many years. I went into it thinking, oh God, I'm going to be so disappointed if I don't like this. Actually, I almost liked it too much. I read it and thought, wow, it was a fantastic thing to read again because I actually read it and thought, wow, when I was 15, I had my head screwed on the right way. This is an amazing, amazing book. What an amazing book. How wonderful to discover that you're the same person. You've changed a lot. You know, all your skin is different, all your bones are different, and yet at the same time, your essence is unchanged. And I found it, the only downside of reading it is the next book that I read, which was um, 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I hated it, which I know a lot of people love that, but I hated it so much. And part of the reason I hated it so much is because it wasn't Absolute Beginners. Mm -hmm. So, have you read Absolute Beginners? No. Did you want to read it? After reading Reading Dangerously. Yes, but it did strike me as one of those... I mean, you mentioned all of the American books, and all of mm. those ones that you mentioned, The On The Roads, The Catcher In The Rise, Fear and Loathing In Las Vegas, are books that I read. They're all very blokey books, of course, but they were books that I read when I was 15, 16, 17. And then the ones that I have read subsequently, I've thought, these are awful. These are the books that are 15, 16, 17-year-old mm boy should read and enjoy and like but Mm. they're not really books that any sensible adult would like and I was I wanted to talk particularly about Absolute Beginners and I I enjoyed the fact that it turned out that it was still great he still did like it it was the classic example of a book I thought you should have read and thought oh god that was shit why did I like this so so I mean we we have to acknowledge that there might be a, a happy twin event going on which is the things that you liked about it when you were 15 are not the same things that you like about it of course now you're 40 but they just happen it happens to work on two different levels at two different times mm-hmm. i must say in regards to the american cult books that i i don't want to it's unfair of me actually to write them all off in that way mm. when i read american psycho which i don't actually write about in the book but when i read american psycho i absolutely loved that but i loved it no, I, I, I was about to damn it with faint praise and say I loved it as a technical achievement. That's not right. I did love it as a technical achievement, but I absolutely loved the carnage of it as well, by which I mean not just the killings in it, but the actual the glee with which it's, it's uh, use the word <laughs> appropriately, executed mm-hmm. throughout, you know, that he knows he's onto a good thing when he's writing that, but you can feel it in the prose. You can feel that he's energised by what he's doing. It's interesting that you you read that book. I don't think that's necessarily a book that I would put with those, the books I've just called books that you should read when you're 15 years old books. But I think it's, it's interesting that you've read it out of the sort of the zeitgeisty context. When that book came out, it was massively controversial and I read it at the time. I don't particularly like it. don't particularly think it's, it's a great book, although I haven't read it since. But I read it at the time, 
you were supposed to read it. Do you know what I mean? when it yeah. was when it was the thing? Whereas it's interesting that you say it stands up so well and you enjoyed it so much 10, 15 years later. Or what? That book is fascinating. I, I'm going to disagree with you on two specific things. I would now include that book in that list of cult mm. writers, which I wouldn't have done even 10 years ago, but I think it's achieved that status. And the second thing is I was working in a bookshop. I started working in a bookshop about two months after that book was published. And younger listeners will not remember this, but we had a staff meeting in my branch of Waterstones down in Brighton Mm -hmm. about where in the shop we should stock that book. It was that controversial. Mm -hmm. Should it be on a front table? Should it be on a shelf? Should it be kept behind the counter? And uh, we decided that it would be on a shelf, but not on a table. Mm -hmm. Uh, The point is context. You know, context is not, to quote somebody, context is not a myth. Reading American Psycho in the, let's say, three or four years ago, as something which has achieved a degree of cultural legitimacy, yeah. which it didn't have in the Absolutely, era you're talking yeah, about sure. or I'm talking about when it was published. And Brett Easton Ellis has yeah. become a, you know, a respected establishment. I think theory. that does affect how you read it. Mm. So that I can go into American Psycho knowing it's not the work of a, let's say for the sake of it, a new writer or mm. a controversialist, but the work of somebody with a track record. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we would say is a lot of bottom end. And see it in that context. Also, it really made me laugh. Sorry, everybody. Some of the descriptions of the records in that book are just (laughs) brilliant, sustained bits of comic irony. You know, so I'm sorry. Listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Andy Miller and we're talking about his book, The Year of Reading Dangerously, How 50 Great Books Saved My Life. And Andy, we're going to start looking at some of the books you choose out of, out of a list of 50. I was going to say deliberately, it might not, it might be accidental, but I've, I've chosen I've chosen about 10 books to talk about over the course of the next two parts of the show. Only one of them I've actually read myself. <laughs> one book here out of this 10, I absolutely adore. It's one of my favourite books ever, but literally it's the only one we're going to talk about today. I'm not going to... Are you going, to, are you going to say which one it not is? Not yet. So I think right, when, we, okay. when we get there, I, prob- I probably will. But, right. um, but it isn't The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov, a book that I also have known about and wanted to read and thought I should probably read and thought I would probably very much like, but somehow have never gotten around to it for years. And this is the first book you talk about out of the 50. Mm. Why this one? I think the thing with The Master and Margarita is that we were talking earlier on about it, weren't we? I think the thing about that book is... It probably fulfills the criteria of being both a classic and a cult book. And that's probably one of the reasons why <laughs> I felt I ought to read it. And you, as you say, you feel you ought to have read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also, I, I, as we were talking about it, I was thinking, but it's also a book about which actually perhaps it's very difficult to bluff. You know, there's lots of other books I talk about in here, like Moby Dick. We could have a conversation about Moby Dick. We'd probably both get away with it. We could have a conversation about Pride and Prejudice. We'd probably both get away with it. I don't think we could do that with The Master and Margarita. And there is a very specific reason for that, Mm. which is that it's a very strange book. 
and a very difficult book to get your head around. It's not a difficult book to read. You know, the translations are good, the prose is straightforward, but it's an incredibly difficult book to boil down into specific uh, themes, images, or plot. The only way you're going to find into that book is by reading it. Mm -hmm. So that's probably one of the reasons why it loomed so large. I probably also felt that there was more to be... I I sound... sound terrible saying this i must have felt at some level it was one of the most impressive books to choose Mm. that having read it and being able to say you'd read it was more impressive than saying you'd read uh i don't know villette well i think (laughs) first of all it's you know all the russians are pretty impressive anyway but there's something there's something countercultural and there's something I don't know, there's just something cool about this book. That yeah, you can't I think say that's about right. Anna Karenina or Yeah, or, I think that's right. You know, or Dostoevsky or something. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't know why No, I don't know what it is either. I mean the thing is what's so fascinating about it is it seems to the Master Margarita seems to exist uh, like I say, at that perfect midpoint between a classic and a cult book. There's a film of it, there are stage adaptations of it. It gets name-checked all the time. Never quite goes mainstream, though, does it? Ever. This, I should say, this is not a book where you're basically saying, here's 50 books everybody should read. This is not like, oh, no. this is a book I'm talking about, it's great, you should go out and buy this book. It's very much filtering your own experiences of, of reading this book. And so I saw, this is a book, Master of Marguerite is a book that I've wanted to read for years and was really pleased that you'd chosen this as the, as the first book in the thing read your description of it, and then thought, I don't want to read that now. You know, you didn't... Mm-hmm. You weren't supposed to be selling it to me. No. But I was sort of, I guess, disappointed in the fact that I thought, this is not a book that I'm going to enjoy. Like, you made it mm-hmm. seem exactly what it is, which is, you know, a, a difficult and tough book, and one that is an impressive one to have read, but I really wanted... This is one that I wanted to, to be like, you to come out and say, yeah, you know, this is... It's a book by a Russian, it's difficult, it looks tough, but it was bloody amazing. Yeah, well, I I did really enjoy it, and I did think aspects of it were really amazing. But it's nice of you to say specifically, you know, the book is not... I'm not trying to sell you those 50 books. I'm trying to capture different types Mm. of reading experience. And so I don't need you, I don't need any reader to agree with me or be inspired by the things that I was inspired by. I just need people to be able to say, well, I, I didn't feel the way about that uh, that way about that book, but I felt it about another book. Mm-hmm. And in the case of The Master of Margarita, you know, I was sufficiently inspired both by the book itself, and I did like it, but also by the fact of having read it to go on to the next one. Yeah. And I should say that at the time when I read it, I had a, a young family and I was um, commuting up to London every day. And so the act of reading a book for its own sake mm-hmm. was actually quite a startling and, and unusual thing for me to do. And so what mattered about The Master and Margarita is that I enjoyed it enough yeah. to go on to the next one. Yeah, so was that like a big enough hurdle for you to say, well, actually, this project is a... Yeah, well, the project, well the, uh, the project at this point had no... I wouldn't have even described it in those terms. I think I just would have... 
I think I was just trying to get back to the point of choosing books for myself and enjoying reading them mm. for their own sake. And fortunately for me, with The Master and Margarita, I had the resolve to get through the first half of the yeah. book, and I enjoyed the second half of the book very, very much. The overall experience of which was enough to push me onto the next one. Yeah. And certainly for the first few books that I talk about, that's really what it was about. It was about setting my mind on doing something. Yeah, and because you don't, having read that, decide to reward yourself with a nice easy one and we're going to talk about a random selection of books we're not going to do the first 10 but the next one is the second book that you go on to and it's Middlemarch again a book that you've already you've already mentioned earlier but this is this is a tough one yeah I read Middlemarch um, by George Eliot I wanted to read I think again you know I'm slightly having to remember back but I think I wanted to read it because it's held up as the paradigm of the classic English novel Mm -hmm. I have an English degree I'd never read it I seem to remember Salman Rushdie appearing on a chat show in the 80s and saying he'd never read it it's sort of almost it was the it's the classic English novel which it's all right not to have read. So it seemed to suggest it push itself forward as the next one to read. And um, I have to say, I had a similar experience to the one with Master and Margarita, which was that I started reading it. I found it incredibly hard work. My lovely wife gave me the brilliant tip of reading 50 pages a day, which sounds like the most reductive kind of unimaginative way to do it but you know what she was right it's not easy it's it's hard work and so I would read 50 pages a day of this whatever it is 700 page 800 page novel and I'd say the first 300 pages the first week of reading it were hard work it was like homework but great books like that are complex and seductive and as it went on I started to think okay well I don't understand everything that's going on but you know what, I'm getting my brain into gear. It's beginning to get easier, and Elliot is doing a lot of the heavy lifting for me. I just need to kind of go with the flow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have to add that I'm not coming at this from a position of complete ignorance. I love reading. I've read a lot of books. I'm not saying I've read nothing, and so this is like virgin territory to Mm -hmm. me. It's not at all. But I hadn't done much reading like this for a long time. And actually, uh, reading, I think, is like running or a physical exercise or anything like that, that you get better at it the more you do it. And um, certainly I found with reading all 50 books, I think if I'd read Middlemarch at the end, I would have found it much easier Mm -hmm. because I'd got my stamina up apart from anything else. You know, when you go into a book like Middlemarch or Moby Dick or, I don't know, Paradise Lost, let's say Paradise Lost, The purpose of the writer of that book is not necessarily to entertain you. It's to start painting a portrait, which you will only appreciate when you can see the whole thing. And uh, that's the lesson I really got from from Middlemarch, I think, which stood me in very good stead, which was dig in. Because because it's you have to go to it. It's not going to come to you. You've already mentioned this in in the first part. But you know this idea that if you don't enjoy Middlemarch, that's that's your fault. It's not it's not George Eliot's fault. Yeah, but I think that's I think that's that's very true. It's 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 a really good point. And I think you know I I know a lot of friends talk about Middlemarch as being you know the really the great novel of English. You know the great English Mm. novel as you've as you've also already mentioned. and But it does strike me as being the one out of, out of all of these books that is most like homework, is a book that I would read because it would do me good to read it. And I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing. That's, that's clearly a good thing. But there's also, again, you know, 
I don't want to say yes to. There's not enough time in too much stuff, like I said in, in yeah. the first part. But why? Why would you suggest that people well, should read Middlemarch? You know, Middlemarch is not a good example, actually, of the thing that you're talking about. And I've sold it short by saying it was. You know, the point is, it started as homework. Mm-hmm. It ended as pure pleasure. There are other books that I could mention that started as homework and stayed as homework. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, I suppose why should people persevere is what you're asking. Well. It depends what they want to do with that knowledge, with that learning. <laughs> I suppose learning is what it is, you know, with that experience. What do you want to do with that experience? Mm-hmm. I guess I'm, the context that I talk about is that we live in an era where you are encouraged at all times to express your opinion quickly, openly, you know, on websites or on Twitter or on Facebook. And the drift, I think, is towards the opinion being more important than the, than the experience. Mm-hmm. Where I would tweet my opinion of Middlemarch, you know, my opinion of Middlemarch on page 100 would not be my opinion of Middlemarch on page 600, but by that time I'd have already tweeted my opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so to some extent I, I moved to say, well, stick with things, partly as a corrective to that, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, in a sense, in a true sense, it's reactionary. It's a reactionary point of view. But I feel the drift is so much in the other direction. Also, I have to speak from a writer's perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, I read a brilliant quote by Roald Dahl today, which is, he said, I don't mind if readers hate one of my stories as long as they finish the book. That's kind of how I feel as a writer. You're entitled to your opinion, but... You know, it took me seven years to write my book. How long would it take you to read it? It's not going to take you seven years, is it? It's going to take you like two days. So do right by me. You know, I haven't gone into it to baffle or bore you. I've gone into it to entertain you. You're entitled not to be entertained. But um, I think, and I agree with that. I don't mind if people don't like my stuff and tell the world about it. But I, I, I prefer them to do it from a position of information rather than ignorance. I'm Olivia Lang, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. The next one I want to talk about is it's a book I, I knew nothing about. I'd heard of it, but I knew the title, but knew nothing whatsoever about its contents before reading your book. And it's of all of the all of the books you talk about, is the one that I most want to read. And it might surprise you <laughs> which one it is. It's The Sea, The Sea by Iris Murdoch. Brilliant. Tell us about. Well, just tell us what this book is about, because it, is just, it just sounds amazing. <laughs> Great. I'm really pleased that of all the books that you should want to read as a result of reading The Year of Reading Dangerously, you should choose The Sea, The Sea by Iris Murder. OK. The answer to the question, what is The Sea, The Sea about? I don't know. <laughs> I've read it twice now. I don't really know, Neil, to be honest with you. What I do think is brilliant about The Sea, The Sea, and um, I'm sure this is true of Dame Iris's other work too, is that one of the things I learnt from writing this book and reading all these books is that I really don't subscribe to any death of the author theory. I think one of the things that's remarkable about The Sea, The Sea is it's as a, an expression, a life mask of... Dame Iris's personality, mm-hmm. that it's held together by her preoccupations, her interest in religion, philosophy, and terrible cooking. And, uh, you know, to some extent, it's the glue that holds the year of reading dangerously together. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a book. What You asked me, what is the link between those 50 books? The link is I wanted to read them and then choose which ones I wanted to write about. Uh, and so The Sea, The Sea is, a, on one level, is a story about a man who 
has been a successful actor and retires to the coast. But he then becomes obsessed with a woman who lives nearby who he realises or at least thinks he was in love with when he was younger. Uh, but then in turn it becomes about a story about a kidnapping and then it becomes a story about seeing monsters out in the bay. I mean, it is one strange book. And yet, rather like The Master and Margarita, in fact, what you can't comprehend knowingly perhaps mm. seeps into you unknowingly. And... Uh, you know, I specifically talk about in the chapter that I write about The Sea of the Sea that one of the things that I found baffling about the book was the narrator prepares a series of really horrendous-sounding meals for himself, which I couldn't... I, I, I read them and I thought, well, what, what is this? Is this supposed to be funny or not funny? Or what, or what is it? So I did some research online and found that no two people who write about this book can agree what they're there for which greatly appealed to me. And uh, we had a friend of mine around to dinner who loves the bird, and he said to me, well, they're funny, they're just funny. Find them funny, relax, find them funny. Being given permission to find them funny, I did find them very funny. I actually prepared a few of them. They were horrible. <laughs> they were horrible, but what was great about it was that it was such a good way. I mean, I'd make it sound very larky, and I suppose it was quite larky, but it was also such a good way to engage with the book. Yeah. Right to meet the author on their terms and mm. try and and try and work it out. And again, you know, that book really stayed with me. That book is one of the books in this that has, uh, like Moby Dick, actually, that has real. You can't understand what's going on, but you might well dream about it, or you might well be not be able to shake it, the feeling of it. You know, and one of the things I also really loved about mm -hmm. the Sea, the Sea, I really like books where the narrator is a bit of an idiot. But it's not immediately apparent to you that that's the case. And I have at various points in my book attempted to, <laughs> to convince you that I might be an idiot. And certainly Araby, who is the narrator of The Sea, The Sea. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You start off thinking, 
well, this seems reasonable. <laughs> and then within 100 pages, you're thinking, what? <laughs> this guy's this guy's a f- an idiot. So Murdoch is really playing with your mm-hmm. expectations of the reader. The expectation, I think, that you have in modern in the modern novel that you need to like somebody. You know, it's a, it's a, he's thoroughly unlikable. Mm-hmm. No one likes him as much as he does. <laughs> it's up to you to try and find a way through it. Okay, well, the next book we're going to talk about also contains a, a narrator, a protagonist, that actually I don't think it takes so long to realise what a terrible person he is. And this is the only book of the ten I'm going to talk about that I've read, and I absolutely love. Hooray! It's a, a Confederacy of Dunces. A Confederacy of Dunces. Um, which I is a book guessed. that at the period of time when I first read it, you know, in my early 20s or something, was, oh, it's a terrible thing to confess, but this was a book that I would judge people on whether they had read or not, and I would buy for new girlfriends and, and all of that, <laughs> that, that terrible well. thing. Yeah, exactly. It went down as well as you could possibly imagine that going down on, a, on a numerous occasions. But um, <laughs> tell us why we, we should read A Confederacy of Dunces. Okay, well, my reason for thinking people should read A Confederacy of Dunces will not be yours. <laughs> Okay, I I tell you about a Confederacy of Dunces. I don't really say this in the book, but I'm going to say it because it's funny. I'm so sick of people telling me about Confederacy, how brilliant a Confederacy of Dunces was that I had lied about it just for a quiet life, right? And certainly, writers love telling you how brilliant it is. Uh, I've known a lot of writers through my professional life. They are the people who are the ones who will tell you how great a Confederacy of Dunces is. And so I took great pleasure in when I finally read A Confederacy of Dunces of realising that the reason why writers like that book so much is because the central character, Ignatius J. Riley, is like a, a misanthropic idiot who lives with his mum and hates everybody. Like many writers do, I would go so far as to suggest. And actually, given that John Kennedy Toole was a failed writer yeah. in his own lifetime, there's almost certainly a degree of... Um, I mean, it is a very funny but very savage self-portrait, I would suggest, as much as anything else. And so I found the humour of it really grim, actually. I found it a depressing book, which made me laugh. But I also ended up thinking it was utterly brilliant formally. Which I think, um, I, when I started reading it, I was thinking, okay, well, th- th- I can see what the trick is. The trick's going to carry on like this. Actually, it's a bit like Catch-22 in that respect. That it has a particular, it sets itself at a pitch. It holds that pitch. But again, you need to read the whole book mm-hmm. to realise how intricate it is, how clever it is structurally. You know, these all sound like technical things, but actually if those technical things don't exist, then the novel wouldn't affect you in the way that, that it did. I mean, I don't know how you... How many times have you read it? I read it at the time probably three or four times, but probably, again, not for 15 years or something. But you feel you carry it around with you, right? Yeah, I I feel that there was a period of of time when it was an incredibly important book to me. Mm. I don't really know why. I mean, I, I sort of enjoyed it and I thought, again, I mean, I think I was also brought up the myth of the book as well. You know, not the, the, the sort of... The origin story of the book as well, which, as you mentioned, on Kenny Tool, you know, he, yeah. he's a failed writer. He ends up committing suicide, and then his mother touts the book around for years and years and years. Eventually, gets it published, and it becomes a, a success. I mean, that's the 
It is, yeah, which is another reason I have to, as I suggest, that writers like it so well, much. I was gonna, because it confirms the idea that all publishers are idiots. Yeah. And, that, and you um, know. No, I, I was going to say that, that writers might love this book, not just because it's technically brilliant, but because it's sort of saying that whatever happens, it might turn out well in the end. You know, your, your stuff might get loved yeah. one day, even though, even though yeah, you're constantly true. being rejected. One, one of the other things I like about it is it's. I can't remember if there has ever been a film adaptation of A Confederacy of Dunces. I think there has. I think there has. I've never seen it. I'm but sure it's has. hard to envisage how it, yeah, how how it could work, work yeah. in any medium other than words on a page. Mm-hmm. I mean, even as an audio book, I can't see how that would be a huge success. I've never tried to listen to it, and I don't know. But there's something essentially writerly about the construction of it it exists in the best possible format that it can do and there's a kind of the anger of it actually i think is really stayed with me more than the humor of it Uh, it's funny Mm -hmm. it's really funny but boy is it furious in all senses of the word it really rampages forward until it stops i'm alex cox and this is little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture in the chapter that you talk about the Confederacy of Dunces, you talk about a couple of other books as well, and, and one of them is the next one I want to bring in, mm-hmm. which is another a writer that's I've never read any of his stuff, but he's constantly being recommended to me by not least one of the other presenters of this show, but um, you know people of uh, a similar age to me, and this is uh, Twenty Thousand Streets Under the Sky by Patrick Hamilton. Yeah, yeah, Patrick Hamilton. Tell us about. That book and him, I guess, particularly. and Patrick Hamilton, the reason why I wanted to read Patrick Hamilton is he seemed to represent a particular kind, <laughs> particular kind of author that it seemed vitally important to have an opinion about, even if, and moreover, the sort of writer that I would really like, mm-hmm. which actually reading any of his books might stand in the way of me being able to... to which is very unfair, but... There is a certain kind of Guinness-drinking 30, 40-something man for whom Patrick Hamilton is a totemic mm. author or individual, I think. So I read um, 20,000 Streets Under the Sky, which is generally perceived to be his best book, I suppose, although it is actually an anthology of three of his novels. Mm-hmm. And I've also recently just finished reading Hangover Square, which is another another of his famous books. And, and you know, he's a very enjoyable writer. He's a good writer. My understanding of his work was deepened by actually having read it. And yet what I would say about him probably hasn't changed that much compared with what I used to say about him when I hadn't mm-hmm. read it. Now, that's not... A, these are all quite... These are all things I'm saying about my against myself, I ought to add. I really like what I've read of Patrick Hamilton. But I also have to say that I... You know, when I was 15, I read Brighton Rock by Graham Greene. Mm-hmm. And that sort of changed me forever, really. I, I've read pretty much everything Graham Greene wrote often several times Mm -hmm. and so coming to Patrick Hamilton relatively late it's very hard for me to see it him as a sort of slightly easier Graham Greene a less complex Graham Greene you know he's very Hamilton is utterly brilliant on pub life and the writer Dan Rhodes talks about this quite a lot and he's absolutely right but I find the melodrama quite difficult to Mm -hmm. to deal with and there isn't the either the audacity in the prose that you would get with Graham Greene or the torment, you know, not just the, the kind of um, sexual torment, but the Catholic guilt and the brilliantly, the way Greene is brilliantly able in some books to weave his work into what's happening in the geopolitical realm as well. Is the appeal, 
and I guess we could say this about John Kennedy O'Toole as well, in that in that a lot of the the residents of the book comes out of the the wider story of its of its writing and its publishing. You mentioned earlier you know, the idea of the you know, the death of the author, which is this mm. idea that the actual authority invested in the book should be the person who's reading it and what they bring to it and what what they get out of it. Perhaps the you know the the, the polar opposite of that is this idea that the entire life of the thing that seems attractive about Patrick Hamilton's over is Patrick Hamilton, the writer, his lifestyle, and therefore that's why the books are, are are appealing rather than the actual books. Yes, I think there is an element of truth to that. I increasingly think that a novel, one of the ways we could see a novel is as a conversation between the writer and the reader. And actually, as you will know from the people you meet in everyday life... Mm-hmm the standards of conversation you might have with one person will not be the same that you might have with mm. another person. It's based on what you have in common, what you, what your background is, etc., etc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.